0: We're all looking forward to going on holiday, Christmas, New Year and into 2022. But how do we enjoy ourselves while still travelling responsibly? Intelligence Squared is hosting an exciting event in partnership with the World Monuments Fund on how to be a good tourist, exploring sustainable tourism and ways to protect the environment and communities of popular destinations. The event is taking place on Monday 22nd of November from 7 to 8pm at Central Hall Westminster in London. And it will also be live streamed online. Tickets start from only £4.99. This is an exclusive event for ticket holders and will not be posted on YouTube or podcasts, so do make sure you come along before they sell out. Just go to intelligencesquared.com slash WMF to get your tickets. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we hear from historian Linda Colley about the history of constitutions, how they came to be and why. Here's fellow historian and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman with more. A written constitution forms the bedrock of nearly all modern societies,
1: even if Britain is one of the few where it does not. Historic documents, they may be, but what about the history of constitutions themselves? Linda Colley is one of the most acclaimed and distinguished historians of her generation. She's the author of seven books, including Britain's Forging the Nation, which won the Wolfson Prize for History in 1992, and The Ordeal of Elizabeth Marsh, A Woman in World History, chosen by the New York Times as one of the 10 best books of 2007. Her latest book, The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World, has been around a decade in the making, and I think this is very clear, from the extraordinary depth and breadth of her research. Yet the book is not only enlightening, but a wonderfully pacey and entertaining read. Professor Colley is the Shelby M.C. Davis 1958 Professor of History at Princeton University. She also happens to be one of my own history heroes, so I feel incredibly privileged to be speaking to her today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Professor Colley. Thank you very much, Alex. Now, constitutional history has, I think, possibly a bit of a bad image. You know, people think of white men in wigs deciding technicalities of who gets to be a fully-fledged human being, but your book... Actually, takes it well beyond that sort of image. You in fact cover an immense sweep of global history, pretty much from the Seven Years' War to the First World War, so sort of around 1750 to 1914. And it's also very much global. There was one point at which you were discussing sort of the intellectual exchange, uh, constitutional politics between Hawaii and Tunisia, and I must admit, I thought, my goodness, it must have taken a lot of work to understand all of these different times and places in such detail. Why did you think this story needed to be told on such a global scale?
2: Because of what I wanted to do. Um, as you say, constitutional history, which was once a very fashionable topic, particularly on both sides of the Atlantic. But since all oh, around the 1960s, it's come to be seen as a very arid, legalistic, area of study. Lawyers, legal theorists might be interested, but in general, no, not something you wanted to read. So one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to try and reimagine this genre because these things are so important, so vivid, so argued over the centuries. The idea that they're just dusty and specialist documents is quite wrong. I also felt that, partly because there is so much about them, these documents have generally been looked at in regard to particular nations. Whereas what I was interested in was spread. Why was it that already by the First World War, you got these kind of single document written political constitutions Operating in parts of every continent, this had become a global type of political technology. And I wanted to tell that story and I wanted to tell it in a different, more lively
1: way. Well, I certainly think you've done that, but perhaps you could begin then by taking us back to the beginning. I mean, before this sort of age of constitutions that you look at, of course, you know, societies did organise themselves along agreed principles and sometimes wrote forms of charters. People will think of Magna Carta. What really changes in this age of constitutions?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. Some people have looked at, oh, Islamic documents and said, well, they're kind of proto-constitutions. Some people have said, well, look, they had codes of law in ancient times. Uh, and, And that's right. But the constitutions I'm looking at are much more volatile and mass-reproduced documents. Uh, And that's partly because, of course, we've got print uh, increasingly spreading in the 18th century. We've got literacy spreading, though um, unevenly, in different parts of the globe. And people begin to realize, this is not the only reason, but people begin to realize that a a written document, a new kind of political contract. You can use print to distribute it within your own land, but you can also use print to send it overseas or over borders and advertise yourself. Uh, This is what the new United States does after 1787 when the founders write the Constitution at Philadelphia and they send copies to... All the countries in Europe and parts of North Africa that they want to influence and impress and say, look, here we are. These are the rules of this new polity. So we've got a rather different kind of political constitution emerging. But it's not just print. It's also the influence of the Enlightenment in part and its necessity. By the middle of the 18th century, not only is the world becoming more warlike, the the technology of war, the costs of war are going up. And so you need to think harder about how you're going to organize the state. How are you going to get men at arms in sufficient numbers? How are you going to get taxes? Uh, And again, constitutions are partly being fostered by this, by the need to change how you
1: run a state. You discuss a lot in the book this kind of changing concept of warfare at the time. You use the term hybrid warfare. Could you explain to us what that means?
2: Well, it's a term that's still used now by warmongers in the early 21st century. Obviously, I'm not meaning it in that way. How I'm meaning hybrid warfare is that for the great powers, especially by the mid-18th century, the great powers in the West anyway, warfare is crossing oceans and continents. So it's no good just having armies. You need to run navies as well. And the navies have to grow. And navies are hideously expensive. Because, you know, armies in those days, people would say, oh, well, we'll just organise some mercenaries. We'll open up the jails and say, look, you have a choice. Do you want to hang next week or would you like to become (laughs) a soldier? So there's shortcuts to swelling armies available. But navies, forget it. You've got to build wooden and metal ships that takes a long time. It's terribly expensive. You've got to train men to sail ships. You can't let someone out of jail and say, hey, you're now manning a warship. Uh, You've got to train them on the job. So it takes a lot of investment. So it's not just more wars, it's bigger wars, it's more expensive wars, because these are for the great actors' hybrid wars requiring power on sea and power on the land.
1: And so what does this mean for, you know, why does this prompt this kind of, you know, perhaps constitutionalism and sort of nationalism at the same time?
2: Well, it doesn't necessarily prompt nationalism, but it can certainly prompt constitutions in multiple ways. The most obvious, I suppose, is that some, even great powers, find the costs of warfare so great that they are put under immense strain. This happens to Britain after the Seven Years' War. It's been very successful in the Seven Years' War, but it's got all these new colonies. It needs ships and armies to control them. How's it going to pay for it? Well, how about levying extra taxes? Well, let's do that on the American colonists. That is not a popular idea. Uh, The American colonists don't like it. And one of the long-term causes for the American Revolution is American resistance to British taxation, taxation caused by the costs of war. And of course, the American Revolution leads to American state constitutions and the federal constitution of 1787 to nine. And a similar thing happens in France. It's the costs of France's hybrid warfare that really bankrupts the French monarchy. So, They have to call for new political forms of assembly in 1788. This is the origins of the French Revolution, which again leads to scores of new constitutions, not just in France, but in those parts of Europe, which France then invades. So that's one way in which war feeds into constitutional growth, that even the big powers are put under pressure. But there's other ways too. If you're defeated in these wars, you may feel the need to issue a new constitution to kind of revive your image. Um, If you are a conqueror in these wars, as Napoleon emphatically was, then you may want to spread your own type of constitutions in the areas you conquer. And that's what happens. Napoleon drafts, sometimes personally, a great many constitutions for Spain, for the German lands, for Italy, for Holland. For his own ruthless reasons, he helps to make the written constitution something that is happening on a large scale in Europe, not just in the Americas. I
1: want to ask you a bit about constitutions in the context of a subject that gets people very riled up at the moment, uh, which now we would call identity politics, I'm sure a term quite unknown to the 18th century. But when people talk about identity politics today, they often mean minority groups asserting themselves. And I'm sure we'll come back to how that happened through constitutions quite a lot. But a constitution is perhaps inherently a statement, isn't it, of the identity of whoever writes it and of what they wish to be. The U.S. Constitution will be an obvious example, written in the first instance, at least, very much by white men for white men. Um, of course, changes later. Um, but are all these constitutions, and you know, coming out of this Enlightenment idea, very much this kind of form of what we would perhaps now recognise as identity politics—a statement of identity and meaning? I don't
2: think they're necessarily identity statements. Very often, they are rather desperate invention documents. You know, they're not telling the truth uh, necessarily. Think again of the American Constitution and that first line, we the people, it sounds so monolithic. It sounds as though, hey, we know who we are, we know what we are, and these are our rules. But of course, this was written at the last moment by one particular founding father. And it was a lie. Um, Americans at the time, well, most of them didn't call themselves Americans yet. Um, And they had different ideas about what they wanted. Um, Some of them were quite happy to continue to regard themselves as Virginians or um, Georgians or whatever. Um, So... In a sense, that that stirring opening line imagines an identity which is not at all secure, um, and these are creative, um, almost um, fictional documents. You know, we tend to think of them as documents of the law, documents of fact, but constitutions are also marketing various fictions and imaginative statements that's why in a sense they need to be looked at as literature uh, not just political documents and sort of a performative act
1: I suppose in a sense they're trying to bring a change in reality by by the
2: use of this this document they're trying to absolutely change I think performative act puts it very well. And it's why print again becomes so important, because as I say, this is a performative act, not just for the domestic consumer, but to send overseas and say, well, you know, the United States has arrived. Look, here we are. But there is that element of performance counterfeit in, in many constitutions, in fact, if you look at them carefully. Now,
1: talking about this phenomenon of kind of sending the constitution out and it having an effect, you bring up the very interesting question of who read these and was it always quite the intended consequence. I want to turn to a case that you've discussed, I think, really fascinatingly the case of Haiti, which of course is very, you know, an early outlier in this period of constitutions really. The Haitian constitution, you know, at the very beginning of the 19th century demonstrated that a predominantly black nation could organize and assert itself through a constitution just as the United States or France had. You have this lovely phrase about it, rights were now formulated, written down, put in print, distributed and laid down by those who had formerly been stripped of all rights. And now the United States and France didn't respond brilliantly to that. Um, Perhaps you can talk a bit about what happened there.
2: Well, the history of Haiti, particularly in the revolutionary period, which breaks out in the 1790s, and then after the Haitians begin to be more successful and ultimately drive the French out you get this string of constitutions, uh, many of which don't last very long. And yes, this is an astonishing political and historical episode. And the different Haitian rulers and leaders who had mainly been men of war, as many constitution writers are, in fact, were often fighting against each other, as well as trying to ensure that the French were kept at bay, that other European powers didn't take them over, that the United States didn't take them over. And so issuing these constitutions was of great importance. They were often not Particularly as we would call them, um, liberal constitutions. Yeah, they, they 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 got rid of slavery at least uh, in print and in writing. But the bulk of ordinary Haitians, who of course were largely illiterate, were still mainly coerced labor in some way. And the rule established in the new Haiti was very militarized in all sorts of ways, understandably, because this was, you know, the first successful black revolution until way into the 20th century. And it was very much at risk. And so there was a great stress on controlling the people, keeping military power there, really running a tight ship, as it were. But it's an extraordinary part of this story of the proliferation of these documents and how they're used in different ways by different forms of power.
1: I also think this is part of the book where it's so clear that the global scale is so interesting and makes for such good comparisons because you talk about Henri Christophe who made himself king of Haiti you know sort of after the first constitution he came in and brought in a monarchy with himself at the top of it and his family and so on but I think you know certainly a lot of his contemporaries around the world and I'm afraid some historians since have rather ridiculed him for this sort of pomposity but I really appreciated the comparison you made of him with Napoleon who actually, as you say, was not really doing something particularly different at the time. Uh, you say that actually Christoph was not an exponent of counter revolution, but rather profoundly revolutionary.
2: Yes, I, I I felt that Henri Christoph, who was again not necessarily a very nice man, but what he was trying to do, like so many constitution makers, was invent a state. And of course it can seem very baroque and bizarre that he invents titles for nobility and he gets coats of arms drawn for them in Britain. Um, He dresses up in royal garb. He builds palaces for himself and so forth. It all seems very self-indulgent. And it was. But he was living in a world where most states, in fact, most countries, when still monarchies, and therefore making himself a monarch, uh, a hereditary monarch, which is what he wanted, was his way of making a very bold statement. Look, I am a black, self-made monarch, but I'm a monarch like all the other monarchs, and I can make a state in my image with my words. And I think he needs to be looked at, as I wrote, as a much more creative and entrepreneurial figure than superficially he may appear.
1: I think what this Haitian story touches on is this interesting question of how constitutions can be used to include or exclude in various ways. And you've discussed in the book how certain groups such as women, uh, indigenous peoples, and of course, slaves too, we've mentioned a bit, were often quite deliberately marginalised by constitutions. Do you think there's something inherently patriarchal about a constitution? Or is it just that these constitutions sprung out of patriarchies?
2: Well, almost all of them were written by males, of course. I don't think written constitutions as they emerged were necessarily patriarchal. But what they often did, because they spelt things out, because they turned things into words which were then printed and disseminated, they often solidified attitudes which had been there but had been rather more inchoate. But now they get out. So, for example, with the right to vote, there's odd examples in Britain, in other parts of Europe, in Japan, of uh, a few usually very rich women having votes for something at a quite early period. But once you get written constitutions coming in, of course, they can say, the franchise is the possession of all adult males over the age of 21 or 25 or whatever. And there it is. And it acquires the force of law. And so, you know, when the early suffragettes sort of try saying, but, you know, what, why can't we vote? And they say, well, you know, look at the Constitution. It's written down there. It's in print. Go away. And you do get the early female suffrage activists trying to get round this by saying, oh, well, you know, perhaps the word doesn't mean that because there are, for example, words in Spanish, which can be either masculine or female in connotation. And you get these rather eager and desperate suffrage activists saying, but, but perhaps they didn't mean it to refer to men. Perhaps they meant women as well. And usually judges say, forget it, go away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it becomes almost like
1: a sort of biblical argument, doesn't it? It's, it's sort of the purity of the words being distilled. And that's so... Fascinating on how uh, constitutions can both be agents of change but also actually deniers of change once they become embedded in this way. Yes. One woman who did try writing something like a constitution, not quite a constitution, was Catherine the Great of Russia, who you talk about a bit in the book. But her Nakaz that she wrote wasn't quite a constitution, was it? Can you tell us a bit about? what it was and why she felt the need to write it.
2: For all sorts of reasons. I was so grateful to Catherine the Great, which not many people can have said <laughs> in life, I suppose, but um, she did give me a, a female peg on which to hang some important arguments and was therefore very welcome in that respect. What she tried to do in the Nakas was again an element of invention, partly self-invention, She was a usurper, effectively. She had been the spouse of the Tsar, who was basically got rid of in the early 1760s. First of all, nudged off the throne, then assassinated, possibly with Catherine's knowledge and will. And the expectation was that she would just be a regent for her son, but she kn- she wouldn't do that. She took the throne for herself. So she invented this huge law code, which she wrote substantially herself, though drawing heavily on books by various Enlightenment intellectuals and reformers and putting it together with other sources of inspiration. But it was a huge document. Uh, she got up morning after morning to, to write it very early, about four o'clock in the morning, day after day after day, and damaged her eyesight reputedly in the process. But she was very proud of it. And it is a remarkable document. And she organized a big convention of representatives from across the Russian Empire to discuss the various clauses of this document. She also, again, uh, had it printed in multiple languages, and it's partly to show her own self as an enlightened czar, but it's also to show that Russia itself can be, will be, Uh, an enlightened new polity, being an example to others. Now, this doesn't happen, of course. Uh, The Nakaz is not implemented. But it interested me because it was so much the creation or the compilation of someone female, but also because it showed, again, that you didn't have to wait for the Americans in 1787, to adopt certain devices about how you create a constitution. There was a zeitgeist already there uh, in which different nations were involved, different empires. And so that's why what I tried to show about Catherine, Uh, she's well known to have loved writing. She was a great reader, a great writer. But because of her fairly colourful private life, which films and novels still focus on, there is a tendency to forget her mind, her ideas. And I wanted to stress that aspect of her as well. Absolutely. Well, you do. And I mean,
1: she is completely extraordinary. Also, a very colourful private life. Good for her. Um, yeah, but, uh, a busy woman. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And is she, do you think the document, I mean, you do mention that it, it may have had some interest in reserving some rights for women, that there may have been a hint of that idea.
2: Well, Russian politics at this time were, at one level, utterly despotic. But certain patrician women, because they were patrician, because they had titles of great wealth and huge amounts of land, did have, and and many Western Europeans point this out, did sometimes have extraordinary levels of freedom uh, for the time. And I mentioned that the great convention that Catherine got together to discuss the NACAs. Well, um, some women, uh, again, very powerful women, were allowed to vote for representatives to sit in this convention they couldn't sit there but they could by proxy influence its or some of its composition Mm. so there
1: was some move beyond the patriarchal perhaps a little
2: yeah (laughs) i mean it was a case here of rank if you like being more
1: important than gender Mm. certainly important to her to stress that point i'm sure
0: yeah This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your your schedule just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge get it off your chest with better help visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp.com intelligence
1: turning to the rights we're also talking about a sort of indigenous people or colonized peoples i was really fascinated by the stories in the book of james silk buckingham and rambo and roy in calcutta in india and i think you mentioned in fact that there has been quite a revival of interest in rambo and roy particularly i think in recent years he's i would certainly see him as one of the standout indian political figures of the 19th century um Buckingham and Roy were inspired by the U.S. Constitution, and you say by Mexico's, which is which is quite fun because, of course, Mexico's Constitution at the time mentioned the inclusion of Indians, by which they, of course, meant a very different type of Indian. But uh, mm. but this could be transferred. But they wanted rights in India specifically for Indians. What came of
2: this at the time? Absolutely nothing. I I talked about this partly because. Both James Silk Buckingham, who's a less known figure, and Ramahan Roy, who is increasingly well known, are so fascinating and um, very important mobilizers of print and newspapers and so forth, uh, as well as in Ramahan Roy's case, far more intellectual texts as well. But I wanted to talk about them writing about these constitutions, particularly the South American constitutions, in their newspaper that they ran in Calcutta at that time. I wanted to talk about this because it was an example of a much wider trend, namely that, um, yes, of course, states send constitutions abroad to have a desired effect. But these documents are also being printed by other agents and in the commercial press, if you like. And people will read them in different ways and they will get out of these documents what they themselves want to see and what they understand. Um, Because, as you say, South American states, the new South American nations that were being created in the 1810s and 20s, sometimes talked about rights for Indians, by which they meant indigenous inhabitants of Venezuela or Argentina or whatever. They certainly obviously didn't mean the inhabitants of the Indian subcontinent. But as these documents travel and are translated into different languages, people get from them often what they want to find. And here's an example, Ramahan Roy, James Silk Buckingham say, we will reprint these South American constitutions because, look, this is an example of rights being opened to men across the racial spectrum. And it is still men, it needs stressing. They're not talking about women, but they are turning these documents in their newspaper translations into documents for transracial rights, if you like, in a very interesting way. So that's partly why they're in my book. Why do you think it didn't
1: work? Were the British just very resistant at that time to codifying any of this? I mean, it was the East India Company still then.
2: Well, uh, not just at this time, but a long time. After It isn't just, uh, of course, extreme political conservatism. And after all, uh, the British are not conceding written constitutions in their own country. I mean, they still haven't uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, so uh, there's resistance all along the line here. But does The obvious problem of numbers. I mean, the British presence in the Indian subcontinent was tiny. It always was tiny in relation to the rest of the population as a whole. So what happens? Do you really want to encourage the demand for rights and freedoms, therefore, uh, through the length and breadth of the Indian subcontinent? I don't think so. Not if you're an outsider wanting to rule.
1: Well, speaking of outsiders wanting to rule and, and great disruptors of history crashing into this history, of course, we cannot avoid Napoleon Bonaparte uh, as he sort of you know, <laughs> cuts a swathe through. Uh, he arrived in a world that was defined by constitutions really when he came to power, of course, because France had already begun to have them and changed them. Does Napoleon, in a sense, prove both the importance of constitutions, because he did keep making them, and their impermanence?
2: I think he shows lots of things. It's possible to be too cynical about Napoleon. I mean, you know, historians are either madly in love with Napoleon, you know, <laughs> obviously many French historians are, but it's not, it's not just French historians. Or they're very critical of him and see him just as a tyrant and a killer of thousands and thousands of people, a despoiler and so forth. And he was. But not many conquerors are so eager to bestow constitutions where they are conquering. Now, Napoleon has his own reasons for doing that. Um, He usually his constitutions provide for kinds of conscription because he wants more men for the French armed forces. And he wants more taxes, a classic case. But he's also very often interested in creating reformed regimes. So often he tries to get rid of discrimination against Jews. Uh, He tries to get rid of certain aristocratic privileges. Uh, Sometimes he does extend the vote, as in the Duchy of Warsaw, uh, part of what is now Poland. Again, it's only to men. Now, these constitutions don't last because, of course, Napoleon himself falls from power in 1815 uh, with the Battle of Waterloo. But what he does do and what does have a permanent effect is that he has introduced, in some cases, written constitutions into parts of Europe uh, that have not had them before. And once these parts of Europe have had a written constitution... Even when Napoleon falls, there tends to be some kind of residual sense, well, we, we've got rid of that, but perhaps we ought to think of another kind of constitution to replace it. And you see that in parts of Germany, parts of Italy. Once you, it, it, it's rather like having, you know, injecting something into the body politic And once it's injected, the body politic has changed somewhat and it never returns to its previous state, absolutely. This leads us to actually
1: one of my favourite bits in the book, which is, I think, a completely fascinating discussion of a critique of Napoleon from a very unexpected angle, for me at least. You talk about him in regard to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in being at some level... Well, is he both scientist and monster, both creator and creation?
2: Well, I think he is because there's, you know, I don't think how it, Mary Shelley, if you look at The time she lives, if you consider who her contacts are, I mean, she's not only the daughter of the great Mary Wollstonecraft and of the philosopher William Godwin, so she grows up with politics from her her childhood. But she and Shelley, when they elope, go on a walking tour through France just before the Battle of Waterloo. So how could they not be thinking of Napoleon and how could they not be aware of the destructions and the chaos that Napoleon had brought in his wake, as well as the reforms and the hopes? So I think one can read part of what Mary Shelley wrote in the light of this and these titanic tortured males that she summons up, both the monster and the scientists, are touched, I think, in part with the cult of Napoleon, which remained powerful long after he fell from office.
1: Turning to Britain, as I suppose we must after this rather wonderful world tour, um, I want to read a really marvellous quote from you in the book. During the centuries in which they invested in overseas empires, powerful and exploratory Britons regularly drafted constitutions for different groups of settlers and colonised peoples, a habit that continued into the 1970s when there seemed to be no one left to write for. Yet Britain itself, as you discussed, didn't have, still doesn't have a written constitution and instead sort of fetishised its unwritten constitution. What was going on there?
2: Lots of things were going on. Um, I wanted to make clear, as I do in the book, that in England, at least, there had been early attempts at constitution writing. You can see the instrument of government of 1653 in the midst of the civil wars as a kind of written constitution, which was intended to apply not just to England, but to Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and to England's colonies as well. But obviously, the the civil wars are defeated. Uh, The English Republic goes, the monarchy returns in 1660. And while you get very influential constitutional texts Subsequently, like the Bill of Rights of 1689, there isn't an equivalent of a written constitution. And indeed, precisely because it had been Republicans and revolutionaries who'd flirted with that in England in the Civil War period. Again, that didn't give written constitutions a particularly good reputation among more conservative political actors. So there was that aspect. But I think it's also, uh, well, there's two points. First of all, there are British sympathisers with written constitutions, only they're not in power. There are intellectuals like Jeremy Benson, who writes constitutions for lots of other places. There are more working class activists like the Chartists, some of whom really do want a written constitution. They've got their own charter, which gives them their name. But some of them would like to go further and have a proper British written constitution. But the Chartists are, again, unsuccessful. They're pushed to one side. And what I think most explains Britain's current lack of a written constitution is partly this this cult of an unwritten constitution, uh, which, you know, narrows vision in certain ways. But also that the British didn't have to try so hard to revise their state. They didn't have another revolution after 1688, which was itself a pretty moderate revolution. They didn't have another British-wide civil war. There wasn't a successful invasion of Britain. So they didn't have the kind of existential crisis out of which constitutions often come. I mean, if the Germans had successfully invaded. Britain in the Second World War, or perhaps in the First World War. I think various things might have happened. Probably the monarchy might well have gone. And possibly, if the Germans had then subsequently been driven out and defeated, an embarrassed British governing class might have felt obliged to refurbish the state by establishing British politics on a new constitutional basis. But as we know, that didn't happen.
1: I think there's a way in which a lot of people kind of springing out of that think of constitutions as perhaps a sort of more civilised way of doing things, that you agree your principles through agreement and reason and rationality rather than violence. And that's, you know, psychologically in some way why I think they often spring out of wars, as you mentioned. But on the other hand, what we see, certainly from your book, is that you get to the kind of mid-19th century and ultimately, of course, the First World War in the early 20th century. And actually, there is an age in constitutional states of wars and revolutions. Do these prove that constitutions just hadn't really worked?
2: Um, Anything made by human beings can easily fail. Success is probably the minority result. And I didn't want to imply anywhere in my book that constitutions invariably power democracy because they haven't. They still don't in many parts of the world. I didn't want to suggest that this was the only way of doing politics. I think it can be a very good way. But written constitutions and violence over time have been intermingled again and again and again. And of course, one of the rather uncomfortable paradoxes is how in the future are we going to keep generating new and up-to-date political constitutions without the stimulus of war or some kind of major disaster. What is it going to take to make Americans reform their now rather out-of-date political constitution around which there is a huge cult, but which is substantially out-of-date and most Americans have never read I mean, we know this. So can there be constitutional renewal in the United States without some kind of major crisis? What's, if anything, is going to create a constitution here in Britain? Well, actually, now that I've posed that question, I think I could suggest some answers. They're not particularly happy ones. But let me suggest a possible scenario. What happens if Scotland in the future secedes and becomes an independent state, which is within the bounds of possibility? We know uh, the Scottish National Party have said that they want a written constitution. So there would be a constitution north of the border. What happens if Northern Ireland decides it's had enough of the UK and wants to rejoin the rest of Ireland in a single island republic. Well, that would mean that the UK would be reduced to England and Wales. And independence sentiment is currently on the rise in Wales. So, you know, this could be quite a cumulative crisis. Might that be the crisis which finally forces the powers that be, whatever powers they are in London at the end of it, to say, you know, we've resisted a written constitution for a long time, but perhaps we need to think again.
1: Brexit leads to written constitution would be an interesting thing that might flummox quite a lot of political prejudices across the spectrum. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Um, Finally then, I mean, you sort of talked a bit about this, but I do want to ask, you know, how we look forward on this subject today, um how we kind of think about constitutions going forward, you write in your introduction that um, I have become not so much a convert to written constitutions as a candid friend, and I think that's very much come across in our talk today these are these are certainly complex documents that that can liberate and can actually impose a denial of rights that can kind of open society up or close it down that can achieve freedoms or can in fact sort of you know ossify certain uh, certain principles that perhaps no longer belong um What do you think will be the role of constitutions in our societies going forward now that, as you write, war very much is changing?
2: Well, I think these documents will have to adapt, not least because, of course, we increasingly inhabit a digital world. These are documents which were bound up so closely in the past with not just the written word, but the printed word. But... Most people get now in richer parts of the world such political information as they take in from a screen of some kind. So how do constitutions merge with that kind of technology? But I think, too, there will be a need to rethink what constitutions cover. You know, increasingly, we know environmental provisions are being put into political constitutions, the ones that have been revised or written anew in recent decades, and the right to clean air, the right to forest maintenance, things like that are being inserted into constitutions. And I think that's very important. Animal rights too are being inserted into some constitutions. Now, again, you can say, oh, well, look, it's only in writing or in digital or in print. That by itself won't enforce anything. But it might, because a constitution is a fundamental law. And once you write something down in a constitution as a fundamental law, for a start, you bring it within the influence of law courts, if you're lucky. And you also help to educate people and inform them. And I think that's often forgotten about written constitutions, They provide at their best a source to which you can go with the questions, what kind of state is it? What does it value? How is it organized? What are the rights and the duties of its inhabitants? And that's a pretty important and useful thing to do, I believe. It doesn't guarantee uh, a ticket to paradise. These are not magic bullets. But then we don't live in that kind of world. So, yes, they can still, I believe, be immensely valuable documents, but only if human beings are determined to make them so. Well, that seems like an excellent note to
1: end on. I want to thank you very much, Professor Linda Colley, for speaking to us today. Linda Colley's book is The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World, published by Profile Books, and I very highly recommend it. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Alex von Tunzelman. Thank you for listening.